Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples in Talladega and around the world. Well, so far in our study of the book of Romans, we have been talking about the gospel. Romans chapter 1 specifically deals with the gospel and unpacks a lot of information about the gospel. And here in verses 3 and 4, we are reminded that the gospel message and the gospel promise about which we talked uh, last week is about a person. It's not just a, a sort of broad, sweeping promise that things are going to get better or that God will fix this. No, it is specifically the message that God has fixed the problem of sin. God has addressed our greatest spiritual need through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. The promise is about Him. The good news is about Him. The gospel is the message concerning His Son. So faith in the gospel then is faith in the person and work of Jesus. There is no gospel if there is no gospel concerning the Son. There is no Christian faith if there is not faith concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, Son of God. In this passage, we are reminded that the gospel is not abstract theory. Although I think at times we are tempted to talk about it like it is, like it is some sort of ethereal theory, sort of floating out there in, in space. It is just sort of this idea of there being a God and therefore there is some sort of good news. But it, the, the gospel is much more specific than simply that. The gospel is the message that there is salvation available to all who will believe, salvation from sin to all who will believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. It is the good news concerning God's Son. As we study this passage this morning, we will consider both the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus as Paul addresses them and mentions them in verses 3 and 4, and, and consider just how important both of them are to the gospel message and why it is good news. We'll talk about the implications of the human nature of Jesus and the implications of the divine nature of Jesus that anchor our faith in Him, in His person and in his work. We begin by talking together about the human nature of Jesus, which is described in verse 3. Now again, I, I want to remind you that what Paul does here in the introduction uh, to the, this letter to the Romans is to uh, mention some things that the, he will then readdress in much greater detail later. So we don't have all the information that could be discussed about these issues in verses 3 and 4, though we have a significant amount of information unpacked here. He is already introducing truths about which he will talk again later in the passage, so some, or in the book. So some of this will come back up again and again, uh, as we're taking this at a very slow pace, it may not come up for years. But we will get to this again, uh, the matters that are introduced here in verses 3 and 4. The human nature first in verse 3. I, I want you to take this phrase by phrase. This is how we'll work through verses 3 and 4, uh, both. But consider that verse 3 talks about Jesus' human nature and begins with the phrase, concerning His Son. Now, back up again, what is concerning His Son? The answer to that is, it's the gospel, it's this good news. It's the promise that's been talked about in verses 1 and 2. That good news, that promise, is about God's Son. 
Jesus is the Son of God. Don't skip too quickly past the introductory phrase of verse 3. It's tempting to do. We want to get straight into the meat of what we're going to talk about, the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus. But don't miss the statement of identity that begins all of this, that this is His Son, God's Son. When we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about some guy. We're talking about the Son of God of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word that became flesh. And again, it is tempting because if we were to talk about Sunday school words, the most common popular Sunday school word, after all, is Jesus. It's easy for us just to think about, oh yeah, Son of God, let's move on. Stop and think for a moment about who we're talking about this morning. Jesus is God's own Son, God in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity incarnate That is the central claim in question. It's the claim that Paul uses these two verses to demonstrate, and it's the claim upon which, as we will see, everything else about our faith hinges. Who is Jesus? He's God's own Son. This is important, of course, because if Jesus is not the Son of God, it means a lot of things about Him. If we even think back through the course of His earthly ministry and His claims to be the Son of God, we recognize that if Jesus isn't, who he said he is, then number one, he's either a lunatic or a really good liar. He's either crazy because he's some guy who thinks he's the son of God, or he's a charlatan. He's trying to deceive everybody else into thinking he's the son of God, or it's true, and he is God's own son. Again, the implications are significant. If he's not God's son, if he's not who he says he is, it also means he can't do what he said he could do. He can't forgive sins. He can't save us from sins. He can't die and rise again. He can't do these things if he's not God's son. But if he is, then he can save us from sin. And indeed, he has saved us from sin. He can rise from death. And and indeed, he has risen from death. He can be the victor over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And indeed, he is. If he's not son of God, everything collapses. Everything about your faith collapses. Everything about what we do on Sundays collapses. Everything about what you read in the Scriptures collapses. But if He is, and Paul sets out to prove that He is indeed Son of God, then He is Savior of the world and Lord of all. So this is who we're talking about. Jesus, Son of God. In describing His human nature, Paul begins with this identifier, this first description of who the Son is as He describes Him according to the flesh. We begin to talk about the Son of God by examining His human nature. Jesus was fully man. He wasn't part man. He wasn't an illusion. He was fully man. He was the God-man. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh to become a man in His incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14 is a familiar passage to you. We talk about it every Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternally existent second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Son, was born in flesh. He incarnated as a man, fully man, taking on a human nature. 
in his humanity, we're told that Jesus was descended from David. In the Greek, it literally reads that he is from the seed of David. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as the one who will sit forever enthroned upon the throne of David. Now, I want you to see where this comes from. So if you've got your Bibles open, I hope you do, go way to the left to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 where the Davidic covenant is first announced and promised to David the king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and and 13. This is the promise that Jesus fulfills. This is why it is important that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh, that he is the seed of David, because he is the fulfillment of this messianic promise, this Davidic covenant, this promise given to David that there will always and forever and for all eternity be someone to sit on his throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 says, when your days, David, are fulfilled, you lie down with your father. So, David, when you die, I, God, will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, these promises are important. And as you read these promises, you recognize that they are fulfilled on a couple of levels. The most immediate fulfillment comes in Solomon. Solomon is, of course, descended from David. He comes from his body. He's his son. Solomon is commissioned to build the temple, and so he does. God promises to build David a house. David wants to build God a house, but God says, no, your son will build my house. And so Solomon, David's son, builds the temple. Solomon also continues David's line. Now, this is significant only when it's considered in context of who David is and that David is the second king of Israel. Who was the first king of Israel? Do you remember? Saul. And you remember what happens to Saul is that Saul was disobedient, unfaithful to God, and so his house, his dynasty, his throne ends. It does not continue for another generation. God chooses another king and another line and another throne. The Davidic line, the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic throne, that's who will sit on the throne forever. So this promise is important. For David, he looks at Saul and he thinks, here was the king before me, but he had no dynasty, he had no house, he had no lineage, his throne stopped. Will the same be true for me? But God promises no Someone from your line will sit on the throne and will sit on the throne forever. Your line will not end. Your line will continue. You won't be like Saul. Your line will continue. And so we might think of Solomon as, oh yeah, he's just sort of a, a placeholder. And he is. He's, he's effectively keeping the seat warm for Messiah. But at the same time, he is that first reminder that the promise is true, that there is one after David from David's line to sit on David's throne. It's an enormous reminder that the promise is true. And so we see it, yes, first fulfilled in Solomon, but to a much greater and to the perfect extent, it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that Messiah promised who will sit on that throne, not next, but forever, without end. The promise for David's throne was not simply that it would continue, but that it would continue without end. 
And so a few things you need to note about how Jesus fulfills this messianic promise in the Davidic covenant. Number one, he comes from his body. He is descended from the seed of David. We'll talk about this more in just a few, a few moments. But it is enormously important that Jesus is descended from the line of David because it means he is worthy to sit on David's throne. And there he will sit for all eternity. It is no small matter that he is descended from the seed of David. Jesus fulfills the the necessary qualification to be seated on this throne in dominion and power. He too is descended from David down that kingly line. And just as Solomon was instructed to build the temple where the presence of God would dwell and where his people could commune with him, though separated by the, the curtain that stood between them and the Holy of Holies, Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to dwell not in a temple made by hands, but where the Spirit of God would dwell within us and who has made it possible because he tore the veil that separated us for us to have relationship with God and he has made it possible for us to dwell with God in his very presence for all eternity. Jesus has made us into a more perfect temple. And we will dwell with God in His very presence for all eternity. And by His Spirit, even now, He dwells within us. And then finally, as His promise, Jesus will sit on that throne forever. He will rule forever without end, occupying a perfect throne. He is the culmination of this kingly line as king of kings. And because he is the culmination of that kingly line, he has absolute royal dominion over all. Now, Jesus could only fulfill this role and this promise if he was descended from David's line. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, now why would Paul say that in his second letter to Pastor Timothy? Why would that be significant? We almost expect that verse to read something like, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead as preached in my gospel. Like, that's the most important things about Jesus, right? He died on the cross. He rose again. In fact, Paul writes about that in, in one of his letters. I, I'm delivering to you what, what was most important. Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Why remind Timothy that He was the offspring of David? Because He is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the Messiah. He is Lord over all. He now sits enthroned, exalted at the right hand of the Father, and He will sit enthroned forever. He has risen from the dead so that He can set you free from sin. But He sits enthroned as Lord, King, and Christ over your life now. And for all eternity, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why, by the way, that little detail in Luke chapter 2 and verse 4 is so important. You sort of skip over that sometimes, right? It's cute in the Christmas story, and you've probably memorized it because you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special so many times. But, but don't skip over the detail in Luke 2, 4, right? And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Why did Joseph go to Bethlehem? Well, because Caesar told him he had to go there to be registered so he could pay taxes, right? Yes, but far more significantly... Because the son that Mary would bear, God's own son, was from the kingly line of David. 
and needed to be born in the birthplace of a king. Because he is the seed of David, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Lord, King, Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords, exalted and so exalted, ruling and reigning for all eternity. That's why the genealogy in Luke 3 and in Matthew 1 are so important. Don't skip them. It's tempting to do, isn't it? It's like a freebie in your yearly Bible reading plan when you get to Luke 3 and Matthew 1. Just skip over the genealogy. No, read it. It is a reminder of how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that there will be one to sit on David's throne without end. Jesus was truly a man. His lineage can be traced. You can follow his genealogy in in Luke 3 or in Matthew 1. You can trace his genealogy. This is important. His humanity is important for a couple of reasons. I want you to think about both of these. Number one, his humanity is important because it means his life was a historical fact, not a fairy tale. Jesus wasn't Prince Charming. He's not some figure you teach your kids about to help them have good morals. He was a real person. The Son of God walked on this earth in human flesh. That's significant because it it means that because He really lived, it also means that He really died. He really died on a real cross for your, by the way, very real sins. And he really rose from the dead and was attested to by many witnesses who saw him risen from the dead. He was a historical figure. And so the gospel isn't a fairy tale because Jesus wasn't a fairy tale. Jesus was a historical person. His incarnation is a a historical reality. And so you can take the gospel and its promises to the bank. They're real. They're true. The good news about Jesus is more than just a message that helps you feel good and teaches your kids to behave well. The message of the gospel is that there is a very real Savior who can in a very real way save you from your very real sins and give you very real eternal life in the very real presence of God for all eternity. Secondly, Jesus' humanity is important because if He were not one of us, He couldn't die as our substitute. Jesus was the God-man. He had a divine nature. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But He also was completely human. He was fully human. Human nature as well. So being in human flesh, He could take the place of human beings on that cross. When we talk about Jesus dying as your substitute, He was your actual substitute. He actually died, I like to say, in your actual place, on an actual cross, for your actual sins, because He was actually a human. A human nature is monumentally important. He's not just pretending. His death on the cross is not just a play act or a grand gesture of what love looks like. Jesus was really your substitute. A human being had to die for your sins. And that death sentence was pronounced for you. You're a human being, and so am I. And you have sinned, and so have I. The only person who could take your place and spare you from the wrath of God that you deserve, and the only only person that could take my place 
and spare me from the wrath of God that I deserve for my wretched sinfulness had to be an actual human being. And so Jesus was. And he died on a cross for you and for me. For all who will believe in him and trust him as their substitute and so be forgiven of their sins. His humanity is critical. But a contrast is drawn then between the two verses. As we move from a discussion of Jesus' humanity and why it's important to now a discussion of his divinity, his deity, his divine nature and why it's important. Verse 4 says, And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, we're going to take this verse phrase by phrase, the same as we did verse 3. That's arguably even more important in verse 4 because some of these phrases are a little confusing and all of them are very important. Not only did Jesus fulfill the human line necessary to be Messiah, as promised to David. Notice this, he was also what no other in that line ever was. He was divine. He was God. A lot of people occupied that Davidic throne. A lot of people in a small way fulfilled that promise. Solomon sat on the throne, he continued the line, and he built a temple. More after Solomon. One after another after another was born in the lineage of David and sat on David's throne and continued that throne. But none of them was ever God until Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was what no other in that line ever was, divine by His very nature As much as we said, and as important as it is that we said that only a man can take man's place as substitute and atoning sacrifice, it is also critical that we understand that only God can forgive sin. Only God can save us from sin. Only God can defeat the power of sin. Only God can defeat death, which is the consequence of sin. Only God can defeat hell and the grave as consequences of sin. And so it was necessary that our substitute be human, yes, but likewise that our Savior be God. And so Jesus was. Deity wrapped in humanity. Completely God, and yet completely man. Now the word pronouncing this and announcing this to us is, is interesting, and it's really, really critical. If you're reading in the English Standard Version like I am, you'll read the word declared. That's the most significant and difficult word to understand in the entire verse. And you say, well, no, it's not. It's the word declared. I know what that means. The Greek is a little more complicated. It plays a very significant role in us rightly understanding the verse. In fact, this word is significant enough that if we rightly understand it, we say things that are good and true and right about Jesus. But if we wrongly understand it, we're flirting, at best, with heresy. So it's important. Some commentators make the case that the English word declared uh, is the best translation. That's why you've got it if you're using the same translation that I am. But other commentators suggest, and your translation might have, a word like appointed. Some of your translations will differ. 
The most common way that that same Greek word is translated in the rest of the Bible is the English word appointed, not declared. In either sense, and it seems, by the way, that appointed is the better word to translate into our English from the Greek. There's not a direct corollary. That's what makes this a little tricky. But appointed seems a bit of a better fit. It's the word that's used everywhere else in English translation. But either way, we need to understand what this is saying, and even more importantly and critically, what it's not saying. Whether you decide that the word declared or the word appointed is better, neither word is saying, listen carefully, neither word is saying that there was this guy named Jesus who at some point became divine or was promoted to being God. That's not what this is saying. Now, there are theories out there, by the way, heresies, that will tell you that Jesus was born a guy, and at some point he was or became God. He sort of elevated his position, or God came upon him and sort of magically turned him into God, or, or whatever else. That is not what this is saying. So if, if someone tells you that, well, Jesus was just a human baby, but at his baptism he became divine... That's heresy. It's wrong. Don't listen. It's false teaching. If someone tells you that uh, Jesus was a man and when he died on the cross, you know, he was just a man, but then when he rose again, he became God. When he came back to life, he became divine. Again, it's heresy. It's really old heresy, but it's heresy. It's false teaching. Don't listen. That's not what this word means. Instead, it means that at a point in time, Jesus was exalted by the Father, having accomplished redemption for his people. He has always been divine. The second person of the Trinity existed from eternity past and incarnated as human. Jesus has always been God, and at a point in time, he became man. Don't listen if anyone ever tells you that Jesus was born man and at some point in time became God. No, Jesus has always been God. He was in the beginning with God, John 1 and at some point in time, 2,000 years ago, he incarnates and becomes man. He's always been God. Specifically, we learn from the remainder of this verse that Jesus is exalted after his resurrection from the dead to the right hand of the Father. This understanding means that Jesus has been set up for us as distinct. He has always been Son of God he has always been holy. He has always been distinct from all others. But following his resurrection, he is exalted and set before us as such. These things that were always true about him are now attested to as he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Let me uh, show you this in a couple of places. Go first to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 1 and then at verse 5. John 17. Verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, so he's praying, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I move down to verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has always been glorious. Jesus has always been the glorified second person of the Trinity. But he prays before he dies on the cross and rises again, because the hour has come, that God will exalt him 
to that glory. In other words, he prays that God would complete through him the work that he set about to accomplish. And having completed that work, he will be glorified, exalted at the right hand of the Father, publicly displayed and portrayed as the glorious one that he has always been. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That's to the right of where you are if you went to John. If you didn't go to John, it's still to the right of where you are if you stayed in Romans. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You perhaps know this passage as well. And being found in human form, he, that's Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because this has occurred, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In John 17, Jesus prays that this would happen. In Philippians 2, we are told that it did Several commentators, by the way, have noticed that our English word horizon comes from the Greek word horizo, which is the the Greek word translated either appointed or declared. And They draw a parallel that gives us a good illustration of Jesus being set up as a fixed point. The horizon as it's set before you, whether you're at sea or on land, is where the, the earth meets the sky, but it's this own distinct point. It's, it's different. It, it's not sky and it's not earth. It's, it's other. It's the point where they meet. It's, it's set out there as a, as a fixed thing. And if, if you're seasick, you're supposed to stare at the horizon, this, this fixed point that is set out there, appointed, declared for you as the place where earth and sky meet as one Jesus, in in a similar way, is set before us as the glorious one, the God-man, the Savior, the Messiah. He is set before us as this distinct point that is distinct from all others. He is like no other. He's not like any other seed of David. He's not like any other man. He is the God-man. And because He is distinct, and set there as glorious and Lord and King and Christ, He can save you from your sins if you will trust in Him. Jesus was not, at this point, made to be the Son of God. As if He were finally becoming something He had not always been. Go back to the Gospel of John, this time chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. Who is that? It's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. and Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus has always been. Jesus has always been God. Jesus has always been Savior, hope of the world. But after His resurrection, the eternal Son of God was set before us 
as the one in whom we must believe. He was set before us as the one through whom alone we can be saved. He was magnified, exalted because of who He is and what He has done. Having accomplished what He came to do according to the eternal redemptive plan of the Father, He is exalted as the One who has indeed accomplished our redemption. The One who has defeated sin. The One who has conquered death. The One who has saved for Himself a people, a nation of kings and priests. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father to declare what has always been true, that He is God's Son, the Messiah, the Savior, the only hope of the world to be saved. Understanding Jesus as distinct and set apart in this way distinguishes Him from all others. There is no other like Him. By the way, let, let me mention some specifics here. Right, we're going we're gonna to call some names out. I was having a discussion with uh, a couple of you uh, before last month's, uh, or I guess this month's, leadership team meeting. After we finished Jude, we were talking about some false teachers, uh, and, and some of you lamented that I didn't name very many names. So I'm going to name a couple this morning. All right? It might get me in trouble, but I'm going to name some names. There are two large groups of people who call themselves Christians, who if you ask them would say to you that they're one of you, but who do not believe what the Scriptures say are true about Jesus. They do not believe what we're saying here, that Jesus has always been God, always been divine. They instead believe that Jesus was a man who became God. They do not believe that Jesus has always been Son of God and now is exalted at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished our redemption by His cross and His empty tomb. Instead, they believe that Jesus was a guy who lived a moral life and set a good example and died as a show of absolute love. And because He was a man who thereby became God, you too can follow in His example. And if you do it well enough, you too, can become a god. It's rather convenient, it seems. It is an oversimplification of the teaching of both Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormon Church. They'll call themselves Christians. They'll tell you that they're one of you when they ring on your doorbell to tell you what they believe, and they will try to convince you that you need to come around to their way of thinking because they're right. They're really one of you. You've just misunderstood. No, they're absolutely wrong, speaking very unbiblically, an absolute heresy. Jesus was not some guy who set the path for how you too can become a god. Jesus has always been God, fully divine. And He came to this earth to rescue you when you were without hope of being saved from your sins. Jesus is not a man who shows you the path of good moral living so that you, like Him, can become God. Jesus is God who became flesh, who became man, to die on the cross in your place and for your sins so that you, because you could not save yourself and find your way to God, He came to you. It is the critical difference between false teaching of the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses and all other religions, by the way, that are sort of uh, overly simplified but summed up in the same basic idea that there is some path by which you can reach the divine pinnacle. God knew you could never reach Him. Not by works of the law, not by good moral behavior. 
And so God became man. When we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a guy who set the example of how you can become God. We're talking about God who became flesh to rescue you because you could not save yourself from your sin. But if you will believe in Him, you will be saved, not because of your works, but because of His What was Jesus appointed or declared or set up as a fixed point as? Well, Son of God. That's the next phrase. Jesus is distinct as divine. The only begotten of the Father. No one else is like Him. There's no other begotten of the Father. Jesus, again, was not a man who became God. He was and is the eternally divine Son who took on flesh, became a man, died on the cross, rose again, and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Neither you nor I is a little God who has some hope of salvation in our own moral living. Our only hope of salvation doesn't rest in us. It rests in the Son of God who became man in order to save us. He was declared, demonstrated to be the Son of God in power. Jesus' deity was clearly and powerfully demonstrated in miracles, in healings, and in teaching with a unique divine authority. And as we'll see in just a moment, His resurrection from the dead was the most clear and powerful display there could ever be of His divine nature. As you think through the the life and ministry of Jesus and the miracles, you recognize that there was a very particular reason for all of Jesus' miracles. They were to prove that He was the Son of God. In Mark chapter 2, we read of the account of the, the man who was paralyzed and whose friends ripped a hole in the roof and sent him down before Jesus. And you may remember how that account goes, that Jesus, instead of healing the man, He heals his spiritual need. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees begin to question in verse 7 of Mark 2, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does this man, Jesus from Nazareth, talk like that? He can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. And do you remember why Jesus healed the paralytic? To prove that he had the authority to forgive sins. Why? Because he was God. Jesus said in response to them, beginning in verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a messianic title Jesus used for himself, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus healed a paralyzed man, not just for the sake of healing him, but in a powerful demonstration that he was God and therefore had the authority to forgive sins. He's declared to be who he was in power. Next, we're told that all these things happened according to the spirit of holiness. Now, there are more questions here surrounding this unique phrasing too. It's not the normal way that Paul or anyone else uh, as as a divinely uh, inspired author of Scripture generally refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit certainly testified to Jesus' deity. He played a significant role in doing so. He continues to do so. As you think again through the ministry and and life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was there to testify that Jesus was the Son of God at His baptism. He testified at Pentecost by arriving on the scene and proving that Jesus was who He said He was. 
And he continues to testify to the hearts of people as he convicts sinners and breathes the life of the new birth into hearts. He testifies to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he melts the hearts of sinners so that they may hear and understand and know and believe. The Holy Spirit does all of this. However, the phrase sits as the contrast to the phrase according to the flesh in verse 3 meaning that this phrase most likely isn't talking about the role that the Holy Spirit plays in testifying to the deity of Jesus, but rather the spiritual nature of the person of Jesus. Now, I recognize, and we should all quickly recognize, that we're talking here about the second person and third person of the Trinity and their relationship, and whether or not we're talking about one or the other in verse 4, and it's hard to separate these things in the Trinitarian sense, and it just makes our heads spin a little bit. But, You'll note that the term spirit of holiness, both in English and in the Greek, is not the phrase that's most commonly used to identify the third person of the Trinity. So in fact, most commentators believe that here we're talking about the nature of Jesus. What we're likely talking about here is a description of Jesus' personal holiness, and that's really, really important. Because without sin and possessing all righteousness, Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law. That Jesus would demonstrate His deity in power according to the Spirit of holiness is a reminder that Jesus was without sin. And because He was without sin, He was able to die for us as the perfect, spotless sacrifice whose blood was required for the remission of our sins, for our sins to be washed clean. That Jesus had all righteousness in His personal holiness means that He likewise is able now to credit us with the righteousness we did not have as a free gift of His grace. The fact that Jesus is holy means that He can be our Savior. The one who can die as the atoning sacrifice for our sins because He had no sin. And the one who can clothe us in perfect raiment of righteousness so that when we stand before the throne of God, we don't stand there in the filth of our sin nor in the filthy rags of our self-righteousness, but now in the perfect righteousness of Christ which He has given to us as a free gift of His grace to all who will trust and believe in Him by faith. And He can give us this standing because He is perfect in righteousness and without sin, utterly and completely holy. He's declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, verse 4 tells us. As we mentioned before, the resurrection is the culminating, definitive testimony of Jesus' deity. No other moment, no other act, no event more powerfully and definitively demonstrates Jesus' power and deity than His rising from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, it proved definitively that He was who He said He was. Maybe you've read the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, or seen the movie that he produced off of that book, or see the movie by the same title, which is really confusing, that was made about how he made the original movie and wrote the original book. They all have the same title, so don't get confused. They're all good. Maybe you've seen or heard of them. He was this journalist who set out to prove that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. He tried to disprove Christianity. 
And what it came down to for him was that if he could prove that Jesus did not rise from death, he could disprove the entire, as he saw it, Jesus myth. He could prove that Jesus didn't do what he said he did, and he wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't really God's son. He couldn't really save anyone from sin because he didn't actually rise from the dead. And if you know the story, spoiler alert, or you have seen the movie, spoiler alert again, you will know that what changed his mind and what changed his heart and what led to his conversion to Christianity was that the harder he tried to disprove the resurrection, the more clear it was that it happened. And he was brought face to face with the reality that if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, he was exactly who he said he was. He was God's own son. If Jesus did rise from the dead, he could do what he said he could do and save us from our sins. And so he came to believe in the gospel and was graciously converted. The resurrection proves Jesus was who he said he was. It proves that Jesus could do what he said he could do. He could defeat the power of sin, which is death. He rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57 tells us of the implications of this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The implications of this are spelled out perhaps even more clearly in Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, or as a result of His resurrection, because He rose from the dead, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The resurrection from the dead proves that Jesus was who He said He was. He was the Son of God, and it also proves that He can do what He said He could do for you, which is to save you from your sins. Because He rose from the dead, He is seated at the right hand of God where He makes intercession for you, and if you will trust in Him, He will wash you clean of your sin and clothe you in His perfect righteousness so that you stand justified before the throne of God because He, Jesus, God's own Son, the divine in human flesh intercedes for you. The phrase that ends the verse is Jesus Christ our Lord. The phrase in Greek is again interesting. It says Jesus Christ, the Lord of us. There's an article thrown in there that sometimes isn't. And it's to point us as a definitive statement to the reality that Jesus is the only one worthy to be Lord of us. Precisely because of who He is and what He's done. Here, friends, is where we see very clear implications about the identity of Jesus and what it means for you. There are two of these, and I want you to consider both. First of all, the identity of Jesus means that He is Lord of all who trust Him. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For the Christian, Jesus is Lord of your life. Lord is an interesting word too. In one sense, it sometimes acts in a lot of respects the same way that our English word sir does. It's a reminder that Jesus is worthy of our obedience because Jesus is king. He sits on the throne of David and will sit there for all eternity. He sits as Lord and King of your life, which means He is worthy of your obedience, Christian. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus told us to go and make disciples by telling them the truth of the gospel and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. But in another important sense, that word is also equivalent to the use of the word Adonai in the Septuagint. That is, it's a reference to God. So not only is he worthy of our obedience because he's king, he is worthy of our worship as we bow before him as God. He's worthy of your obedience. But he's also worthy of your worship. He's worthy of you living your life to please Him, but He's also worthy of you, Christian, living your life to glorify Him in everything, every action, every word, every thought, every motive, to please and make much of and magnify and glorify Him because He is Lord. But secondly, friends, I need to tell you that not only is He Lord of all who trust in Him, He is also Lord of all, period, full stop. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the continuation of a passage we referenced earlier, says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, if you are in this room and you are a Christian, Jesus is Lord of your life. You have trust and believed Him to be so. So obey Him and worship Him and glorify Him. He is Lord of your life. But friends, if you're here and you're not a believer, He is still Lord if you don't bow to him in this life, you will one day stand before his throne and be brought to your knees to bow before him. There is not a soul who has lived who will not bow. You will either bow because of his grace to save you as he is Lord of your life, Or you will bow one day when it is far too late and you finally recognize what you denied to be true all your life that He is indeed Lord. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what is already true. But if you wait until that day to bow before Him as Lord, it will be too late. And it will be your acknowledgement of His Lordship before you are ushered in to eternal torment because of your rebellion against Him. You will bow, now or then. The gospel is about Him. The gospel is about the person and work of Jesus. The gospel is about God's Son, fully human, so that He could take your place on a cross and die for your sins. The gospel is about Him, fully divine, so that He could rise from dead to set you free. The only question now is, are you bowing now, or will you bow then? Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus? 